morning, everyone. Today is more of a stool day than a standing day. So um, today, uh, a little bit different as far as the message, as we go to the communion table at the end of our time, we're going to be reflecting through the, the idea of epiphany. And the idea of epiphany means that of, of revelation or the manifestation of something like, there it is, I can now clearly see something. And uh, the idea of epiphany is in the sciences where like uh, uh, Isaac Newton is trying to figure out something and he's walking through an orchard and all of a sudden he sees an apple fall from the ground. All of a sudden it hits him, some kind of thing about gravity that opens up this huge space. Or Albert Einstein was working at... Uh, uh, as a desk clerk, as he's thinking through all these realms of quantum physics and everything else, and he just all of a sudden, when he wasn't even thinking about the sciences, all of a sudden had this epiphany of, of the theory of relativity. Or uh, Tesla, for you electricians in the room, he was the guy that uh, figured out uh, direct current DC, and then he was taking a walk, and all of a sudden, just in taking a walk, there was this revelation of how alternate current AC could work. And in the Christian faith, when we say epiphany, we do mean revelation and we do mean the manifestation specifically of who Jesus is. Depending on which church background or tradition you come from, uh, the idea of epiphany is this revelation to outsiders, but really to everybody about who Christ is. In one tradition of the church, it focuses in on the, the wise men coming to see Jesus. Hold on, I can't see Ben Bernard's face either. And... And, uh, yeah, I'm looking at you. I, I, I can see your eyes, Ben. And um, uh, so the idea of the wise men coming and other traditions, it's focused on Jesus' baptism. In general, the idea of epiphany within the Christian tradition is this time between Advent, between the birth of Christ, and the time of Jesus' ministry starting. So that's kind of like the general realm of, uh, of epiphany in the story of Jesus. The Advent is the coming of Christ, and then the epiphany is the time between the birth of Christ and the start of his ministry. And so today, as we go to the end goal of our worship today, which is the communion table, we're going to be reading through certain uh, epiphany stories between that time. And I'm actually going to overlay them on some different things that have been happening in 2020 and even beyond 2020. And if you look on the back of your paper, your lyric sheet, you'll see some notes there. Um, that we're going to hit. And just real briefly, um, the three areas that I thought of while we could talk about politics, while we could talk about COVID, um, there's other things that happened the past year and the past couple years, such as the racial tensions in our country, um, such as the continuing uh, nature of deconstruction of faith in the Christian community, and also that of moral failure in our churches. And while we might not have direct uh, contact with all of these things, all of these things do affect us and all of these things are temptations for us to do uh, um, without God, meaning like we don't give God his proper place in these, in these things and we get confused. So as we go to the communion table today, what we're actually asking and praying for is an epiphany in our lives about these things. And we're coming saying that we don't know, I don't know how some of these bigger things that play out in our culture and society today I don't know how to walk through them appropriately. And so we come in a posture of humility as we look uh, at these things and as we think about the story of Jesus. So we're asking God to steady Cornerstone as his church today. 
the church in Lebanon, the broader church. So this is also an act of intercession as we read through the scriptures. That we need to be anchored in Jesus so that we as individuals and we as people are not capsized by the flood that can come during uh, different seasons of life. So today is not about being fruitful. What does it mean for the church to be fruitful? That's not what the question is today. The question is, what does it mean for the church to be steady in unsteady times? Uh, If you look at your second, uh, I think it's your second slide that's there, where it says Proverbs 4.23. Uh, I wanted to read that. So from Proverbs chapter four, it says, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Um, a couple of you might remember Josh Bitework. I don't know if anybody, like Ben, I know you know, a couple of people might remember Josh. He was part of Netzer. He was down at Parker Ford as a pastor. Him and I still keep in touch with one another. Josh uh, loves to pray for the church. He prays for Cornerstone all the time. And we get together and do some like weird like th- theological thought experiences where it's like I was asking him lately, so what is the importance of God's hate? Like, and he's like, what are you talking about? And that's usually how our conversations start. And I'm not here to talk about God's hate today because we're actually going to talk about that during Lent, so that'll be fun. Um, but what that led to was that him sharing this image that he had of what's going on in the culture right now and in the society with the church. And if you look on your sheet, you'll see, do, do you see what's on that sheet, that little graphic there? It's a, it's a canoe, and it's pointed straight ahead. And the picture that Josh got was that he's seeing this uh, this wave of stuff and of chaos, basically with everything in 2020, with everything in 2020, basically uh, pushing the church downstream, where we're actually losing ground, and we need to be okay with that. And so all of this stuff is happening, but what we're doing is that we're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so the canoe that we're in as the church is that we're looking forward. And we're tempted in the chaos that is rushing to us either to just go with the flow of everything or we need to turn to the left or to the right because we want to try to control this chaos somehow. Except our methods of control end up being chaotic too when we live in a world of fragmentation, when there's divided hearts, when there's divided minds, when things aren't clear. And so what happens if water is rushing to you, you're trying to, you're being pulled back, but you're trying to stay steady. What happens if you turn too far to the left or to the right? You're going to capsize if the water is flowing too, too fast towards you. And so for the church, what the church is actually to do and to focus in on this time is not necessarily winning as far as gaining ground, but is to keep our eyes fixed on that which is secure to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, even when there's these things in our world that we want to be able to kind of have control about, our methods of control end up actually hurting things more and more. And so what we're asking today is that, uh, Jesus, would you show us through your story? And this isn't like a teaching Sunday where it's all going to make sense. This is more of like a spiritual reading of the text where God, 
Steady us on who you are. Fix our eyes on you so that we don't turn to the right or to the left and then end up capsizing, whether as individuals or as the church. Does that, does that kind of make sense, everything I'm saying there? So winning isn't about gaining ground as the church right now. Winning is about keeping our eyes fixed on the steadfast one that is Jesus. And if we take our eyes off of what is straight ahead and look elsewhere um, in this time, it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in, in uh, all, the, all the negativity, all of the uh, ungodly hatred, all of the ways of trying to control things that really don't control things. So let's pray as we go, as we step through God's word. And I would really encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open up your Bibles and look through these stories. I'll be reading through the NIV. Um, And just to make, we're just going to make quick little notes uh, about what's going on here. But let me pray for our time in the word first. So God, we ask that you would uh, plant your seed, that you would scatter the seed of your word and of your character in us today. As we both look at your story from long ago, but we ask your spirit to speak to us that we ask your spirit to steady us on the person of Christ and the things that you call us to. I ask God for all of us where, where we're tempted to turn to the left and to the right, that we would keep, keep our eyes fixed on you. That we would not try to control things um, in the overwhelming flood that actually end up making things worse. But that we would anchor ourselves to you, that Jesus, you are our anchor, that you are the unshakable one. And help us as a people and as your sons and daughters fix our gaze on you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the first, one of the first things that came to mind was the racial tensions that came up this year. And again, none of these things are necessarily new or unique to 2020, but in May when George uh, Floyd happened, it revealed this one incident, this one um, man represented this thing of cultural unrest as far as racial tension in it. And then there's been kind of this insanity going back and forth even within the church that how do we address this and how do we address this p- properly? And the thing that I want to say is that I don't know, is that it seems like at times where we think we're making progress in one way is that it ends up being detrimental in another way. Or we kind of go the other way and kind of in our privilege, we ignore it. And yet that is not what the call of the gospel is to do. And so the fragmentation of this racial tension is between power and dignity, I believe. And we have this temptation, instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, and Jesus, what is your gospel saying? What is your gospel leading us into? Even if it's not even in practice yet, but it's that in keeping our eyes fixed and focused on you, we either turn towards this privileged ignorance, which is what I would say is my temptation, where, you know, this idea of uh, racial reconciliation or this idea that everybody treats one another with dignity despite their, uh, the color of their skin or their background of where they were from, that I can tend to go towards this privileged ignorance and say, that's not really an issue here in Lebanon, or that's not really an issue in the country. This, isn't this old news? Or the other way that we can try to have control on these things is this tyranny of urgent justice, where we do see justice and injustice happening, and we want to rectify it. And yet in our inserting ourselves into this quick way, there's like this flash thing that happens and makes us feel good, but actually doesn't change things long term. And so we want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus, how would you have us walk 
in this as individuals, as a community of faith? I don't know. Personally, one of the things that comes to mind uh, with this topic in Lebanon is that we pray for revival in Lebanon. We pray for reformation in Lebanon. And yet if the church in Lebanon is so divided as far as like we have the Anglo-Saxon church and then we have the Latino church in our area that are not talking, that are not um, even in conversations with one another. What kind of revival is actually going to happen in our city when such a big part of our city is made up of uh, the citizens that are from uh, Puerto Rico or from other places, brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet there's no cross communication with that. And so there's this thing here where even if it's not a, a reconciliation of that, is there a communication as the body of Christ towards other uh, flocks of Christ in the city in order to pray and to press into the oneness of God? And so in relation to this, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 2, this is our first epiphany story. This is when Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby. Uh, it was, I believe it was seven or eight days after he was born. And there's a, a priest in there, Simeon. I'm going to start in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him, took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, or maybe a better translation, in the sight of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Jesus' mother, this child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So Jesus isn't going to be necessarily popular in all the things that he brings as he brings the kingdom of God. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. This probably going back to the idea of how our biological connection with one another is actually secondary to the spiritual family and to the spiritual family that God is setting up in his kingdom. But I think the key verse to meditate on, to think about in this, is that in Jesus, uh, as, as Simeon saw, my eyes have seen your salvation. And salvation is, yes, about the individual and about the soul and the body being redeemed from sin, from death, from hell and being connected to God. But salvation is more than just the individual thing. Salvation is about rescue in all areas of our lives. And it's for all people. That it doesn't matter what people it is, that those who come to Jesus, 
that those who follow Jesus, Jesus is offering that salvation to all. And part of the gospel that we often miss when we read the New Testament is this reconciliation of Jew and Gentile that can play into so many different people groups and how this was something of the gospel that was very unique and something of the gospel that was made to show the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm what the power of God can do. And if we say that we as a church are about the gospel and that we're not looking for those places where we can be together in differences, whatever those differences are, whether it's the political differences, whether it's our our view on philosophy on life, and yet Jesus is at the center of it, whether it's because of the color of our skin or the culture that we grew up on, if we can't come together as that, we are missing a part of God's salvation that he has for us. And we need an epiphany We need a revelation of how we can walk that out. Again, not trying to, oh, we're going to do this, 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 and this, and all of a sudden everything is going to be okay. But this long-form walking in the gospel of how uh, both Jew and Gentile, people that are different from one another, can come and worship under the same roof, connect one another's hearts to one another, have good fights with each other, and try to proclaim the, the benefit of the city that we live in so that there is a dignity that is shown to all people. And to be able to wrestle with that issue in myself, like, oh, when I see you, I think differently about you than I think about this other person, and why is that? And to not heap guilt on ourselves when it's not there, but to also be very uh, um, honest with ourselves when we do see those things in us. That is part of the gospel that every single one of us uh, deals with and needs to deal with as a follower of Jesus. Salvation is more about the individual and the soul. It's towards all people. And many issues that the gospel addresses have to do with that reconciliation. So story two, the second thing that's a continuation of this year, the deconstruction of faith. Uh, You know that this is a thing because there's about 27,000 podcasts now that talk about the deconstruction of faith, which a lot of them I listen to. And what the deconstruction of faith is, it's the art of trying to make sense of previously held certainties of the faith. And uh, usually what happens is there's this common instance, as one uh, scholar notes, where we start thinking about like, this just doesn't really resonate or make sense anymore. There's something going on. And he identifies three different things. One, uh, deconstruction of the faith happens during a traumatic experience, maybe around the death of somebody. Or two, it it happens around self-contradictory teaching, like, Justin, I hear you say that, and then you say this other thing, and I, that seems to contradict each other. You're saying this, and yet you're living in a completely different way than what you're saying. So how does that work out? That's making me question some things. Or third, there's this issue of inconsistent praxis, where, again, I say something, but I'm not living what I say I believe. And so these can come to this place where there's this deconstruction, this taking a part of our faith and trying to figure out what it really means. And the temptation of control as this is happening more and more in our culture isn't necessarily bad, but when we try to control it, we can go to the left and we can pretend that deconstruction, the thoughtful engagement of our faith, isn't part of the Christian faith, and it most certainly is. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he over and over again said, you heard it said this, but I say this, that he was deconstructing some of the common beliefs about what was going on in the culture, in the religious mind, trying to point to something new and beautiful and true, even something old that seems to be new because we haven't heard it like this. 
So we can go to that side and say, like, uh, this deconstruction thing, you know, that's not even part of the Christian faith. If you look at the book of Proverbs and you read through the book of Proverbs, there's kind of this clear delineation that the righteous prosper and the wicked don't prosper. And then you look around the world and what do you see? And you know what the response to that is in the word of God? Ecclesiastes. And so even within the scripture itself, it's going through this, like, it's not as simple as that. And that doesn't mean there's not core things that we hold on to in the person, in the resurrection, in the life and death of Jesus Christ as a historical marker. But then those things, as we grow as Christians, we need to grow and certain things need to be deconstructed. I know stories in here of people that grew up thinking one way in the Christian faith and now 30 years later think differently and yet they're still holding on to Jesus. This is part of the Christian faith. So we shouldn't go to the left and think this isn't part of the Christian faith. To the right, though, is this temptation to partake in the dark, what I would call the dark enlightenment of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we think that knowledge itself is going to save us, where we think that knowing certain things and almost being elite and like, I know this thing, Ben never studied this thing, and I feel like better than Ben because I'm being so brave and deconstructing my faith in this way. And yet my heart is far from God, and yet my heart is far from the love of God that he calls us to be, calls us to do. And so there's that temptation of control. Personally, I've gone through at least two and a half deconstruction seasons of my life when I was 17. That deconstruction led me to Jesus when I was 27. That deconstruction helped me get untangled from a little bit of fundamentalism. And I'm probably geared up for another season of deconstruction coming up this year, especially turning 40, possibly having a sabbatical, and just trying to hold on to things. And for me personally, like just to be honest, there's this question where uh, I'm asking myself, and I've asked some of you to pray for me, where it's like, um, what short-term losses do I need to partake in now for long-term health in my faith? I don't want to wake up five years from now and not love Jesus. And I don't want to wake up five years from now and hate the church because I didn't deal with these things that are inside of me. I don't want to have that unbelief. I don't want to forget who the real enemy is of sin and death and the devil and then put that on other people. And so this deconstruction thing is important. Second story of epiphany. Luke chapter 2, starting verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him, who heard Jesus, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so I think what centers us in this passage is that um, oftentimes in our deconstruction, the person of Jesus can go missing. 
that there's so many theological and philosophical questions about how to live life and what I believe that we aren't anchored to the person of Christ. One of my friends asked as we were going through a season of uh, a handful of our friends leaving the faith was like, so are you just going to leave the faith, Justin? Is that just what is up for grabs now? And I just told him, the one thing I'm not letting go of is Jesus, that, I, that I'm tethering myself to the person of Christ. And as I'm free-floating out there in space, searching these things, looking at the mystery and the solidity of life, that I'm not going to sever this cord no matter what. Now, is that always a possibility? Absolutely. But there's also this distinct thing in our mind where Jesus goes missing in our lives, even as we think we're trying to find him. But Jesus, where are you, Jesus? And then we get upset at him when we leave and he's where he should be. It's like, where are you, Jesus? Why aren't you here? Well, because I'm where I'm supposed to be. And so as we, as we think about this area of deconstruction, we also need to think about the fact that Jesus questions us that Jesus is deconstructing us in his love so that new life can spring up. And it's not just this selfish, or it shouldn't be just this selfish, and I use that word lightly, this uh, self-centered thing where I need to figure out stuff or else I'm going to go insane, which is really important to not go insane, people. And yet there's something where we have to tether ourselves to the person of Christ. And as he says, like, why were you looking for me? Where is Jesus in our lives, in our search for these deep questions that affect our hearts and our, and our minds? And then third, moral failure. What I mean by moral failure is over uh, especially the past two years, but we saw it multiple times, that different Christian leaders, usually of high influence, almost always men, have been giving in to sexual and financial temptations, and then it always comes out on the back end. It's not this kind of confession of this struggle or this confession of this sin. And so there's this fragmentation in our culture between character and calling and even within the church. And we can say, well, those, those men were from the quote-unquote seeker-sensitive movement or they're from the hipster church or they were from the, this uh, old-timey thing. It affects everybody and everybody in here, whether you're a Christian leader or not, is tempted with questions of morality, with questions of how we are going to live our lives as Christians and that we are going to screw up in varying degrees. And what do we do when we screw up? Is God's uh, salvation, is God's forgiveness, is God's reconciliation, is God's justice not actually part of something? And a lot of these moral, moral failures are the things that actually cause some of the deconstruction that we think about. Just like, how can this person have so much influence in the church at large, and yet their character is off the wall? Like, I don't know. And I'm really glad, uh, I would never want this because of my servant gifting, that like Cornerstone isn't this, this big thing that like people like tune in on the internet to see what that Pastor Justin is saying or anything like that because of maybe the power and the influence that affects. And I don't mean to put these men or women down because we're all susceptible to these kinds of things. So what happens in this temptation of control that this comes at this, this moral failure, either we decide to go to the left and we need to hide better. We need to hide ourselves better to make sure that people don't know who we really are. And that's what I'm tempted to do. It's really hard for me to actually answer the question when Steve Cracky asks me, how are you doing? And it's weird as a pastor and as a Christian leader that I ask that question all the time of people. And then when people ask me, I'm like, bleh, bleh, bleh. and it might not even be that anything like crazy is happening. 
But it's like this weird thing of like, can I be broken as a Christian leader? And can I also not be okay with that brokenness in the sense that God has, is calling us and transforming us, all of us, into his image? That I can actually confess my sins to my mentor? That I can confess uh, the stuff that's going on in my life and find healing and find reconciliation in those places? So it's either we want to hide better or we want to sell the value in our churches that success is more important than character. Who cares if Justin is off his rocker a little bit or is doing this kind of shady thing on the side as long as Cornerstone's growing, as long as seats are being filled or as long as we're baptizing people, as long as the budget's okay, then it's okay. And so there's this fragmentation between character and call and yet we need to fix our eyes on Christ, on Jesus. You know, the question, am I destined as a Christian to just eventually fall off the map in some kind of huge moral failure is a question that has crossed my mind once or twice. You know, is that just what we're destined to? And that's, a, that's, like a, not, that's not a logical thing to think, but I feel it. And I think a lot of us can feel that too, that I'm just going to end up doing something and then I'm out because I can't deal with uh, my sin rearing its head like that. Third story in Epiphany that centers around John, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, great evangelical start, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Meaning, well, we have this certain spiritual connection. We don't necessarily have to bother with that. We're covered. And in Jesus, we are covered. And because we are covered, that means we can be honest and vulnerable with our community and with God in the stuff that we struggle with so that it doesn't become that tipping over point of huge moral failure. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. These very ethical commands that it wasn't just believe, which is absolutely important, but what is the fruit of your repentance? What is the change that you are making in the grace of God in order to, to, to seek after God, in order to actually repent? And you know, out of all of these three, the crowds, there was another group of people that was there that didn't ask that question. And who was that? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we see from Matthew. That the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to come down and see the religious leaders, wanted to see what John was all about. But Luke doesn't record them as part of the crowd asking, what should we do? And or as we as Christians, we expect other people to think, hey, you need to ask, be asking what you need to do in order to get right with God, how you need to have fruit that's in correspondence with the grace of repentance. But we're good. 
we're covered, I don't have to ask that question, which is totally false. The religious leaders did not ask what they could do, and you can't rely on your spiritual or your intellectual or your family benefit when it comes to the truth and the grace that's in God. And so finally, as we go to the communion table, we touched on deconstruction, moral failure, racial tension, and now we get to Jesus. Like this all leads, even when it's about Jesus, it all leads to Jesus, to himself, to keeping our eyes fixed on him during this time. Verse 15. Uh, chapter Luke 3:15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, that John might be the one that's going to bring wholeness, that's going to bring forgiveness of sin, that's going to set things right now and in the future. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. <laughs> Which when you think of good news, you don't usually think about words such as unquenchable fire and the sickle that's coming to harvest everything. And yet it is good news. But when John rebuked Herod because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, so there's this Im immoral thing happening, and all the other evil things that Herod had done, Herod added this to him. He locked John up in prison. When all the people, jumping back to the baptisms, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven that you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. All other things that we fix our eyes on are tainted in an era of fragmentation, that they're not incredibly pure, they're not incredibly clean. And so instead of two elements working together in exponential reconciliation, we in the divisiveness of sin during this time, we twist and we pit them against one another. Truth is at odds with grace. Spirit and mind are rivals. Love and justice, adversaries. Heaven and earth loathe each other. And that's not actually true. And yet we kind of live in that. But this division is not found in Jesus. Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, who God is always pleased with. It's him that we can set our eyes on and fix our eyes on. And even when things feel out of control in your life on a personal level, on a cultural level, or whatever else, that we don't need to try to control things. That doesn't mean we don't work towards the kingdom, but we fix our gaze on Jesus, on the person who is perfect, and let his spirit and his fire minister to us and speak to us. And that we're going to turn to the left and we're going to turn to the right and we're going to fall over at times. And Jesus will pick us up if we let him.
but let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So as we remember the body and the blood of Jesus poured out in love towards us, why don't you go ahead and prepare your communion elements now? If you are not uh, taking of communion, that is absolutely fine. Please don't take communion as a religious exercise today. I mean, never do that. But don't do that today. Don't do it as a religious exercise. And if uh, you don't feel uncomfortable taking your mask down uh, and you just want to hold the elements in your hand, that's also completely fine. This isn't magic. This might be um, supernatural symbolism, but this isn't some kind of weird magic that we're doing right now. And as our prayer for communion, I'm going to pray Psalm 141. Psalm 141, I call to you, Lord, come quickly to me. Hear me when I call to you. May my prayer be before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds along with those who are evildoers. Do not let me eat their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me, that is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, that is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it, for my prayer will still be against the deeds of evildoers. Their rulers will be thrown down from the cliffs, and the wicked will learn that my words were well spoken. They will say, as one plows and breaks up the earth, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of the grave for those that are wicked." But my eyes are fixed on you, sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not give me over to death. Keep me safe from the traps set by evildoers, from the snares they have laid for me. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by in safety. In Christ, God has answered our prayer. And so as we partake in communion, we remember Jesus' sacrifice. We remember his defeat, his disarming of evil. And as we take of this, we also ask for that epiphany, for that revelation of how to walk in difficult times and how to have joy and not how to be swept away by the flood. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your love towards us and how it displays the Father's love for us that was since the beginning of time. And we remember the the tangibility of these elements as we take them in. And we say, praise be to you, God. Keep our eyes fixed on you. You may partake of the bread and the cup.